Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 8th of September, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, Brian, we're going to get started off because we're uh, all going to be cared for uh, when we're old, of course. Uh, and uh, well, that is going to be paid for by the rest of us uh, by through a particular tax rise we'll come on to in a second. But anyway, what are they saying? October 2023 and onwards, uh, you'll only have to pay a maximum of £86,000 for your old age care. Um, and uh, anyone with assets below £20,000 is going to pay nothing. And anyone with assets between uh, £20,000 and £100,000, uh, that'll be means tested. So that's all good. It's going to be paid for instead of a rise in uh, income tax. Uh, a rise in national insurance of 1.25%. Uh, and that uh, rise will be changed back to the current levels after one year when a new social care levy will be imposed. Now, what's interesting about this is that if a number of years ago, uh, the UK column, if you remember, ran uh, an NHS conference. And one of the speakers at that was making the point that, uh, of course, uh, privatisation is on the way. Uh, and so one of the things that... Uh, uh, we might want to, might expect to see would be a separate tax coming along for um, for future uh, healthcare in a privatized system, uh, and that seems to be what's going on at the moment. Um, so uh, this tax rise is going to mean uh, an overall tax burden uh, if you include all the current income tax VAT plus this new one of thirty five percent of GDP. This is the highest ever in history. Uh, and that's uh, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Uh, there are going to be more tax rises in the coming uh, months and years uh, because, of course, the government's spending like there's uh, no tomorrow. Um, but uh, the real issue here is uh, what is this about? Is this about funding social care or is this about doing more damage to uh, to the uh, to, to private business, small businesses in particular? Disruption is the word. Yes, because, of course, they could have uh, increased uh, income tax, which have had would have had no impact on uh, businesses, but by choosing national insurance, the 1.25% thing is actually only half the picture because that's what uh, you and I will pay. Uh, but then the business has to also pay uh, employers national insurance, which is going to be another 1.25%. So it's actually two and a half percent. And uh, many of the uh, many of the business leaders a bit upset about this. This is Lord Bill Moria from. Uh, the uh, CBI saying business is already set to be hit by a substantial rise in corporation tax in 2023, uh, and this is going to make things even more difficult for them. Many others saying pretty much the same kind of thing. Uh, and uh, well, you know, if business, small businesses in particular aren't already under massive pressure, then this is going to increase that. Uh, but uh, the Taxpayers Alliance had this published today uh, flashback. Boris Johnson said, national insurance increases are regressive. Uh, so once again, uh, Alex, if I can welcome, welcome you to the program. Uh, we have the government uh, saying one thing one day, doing the exact opposite the next day. And I think this is going to be a theme that runs through this, this uh, program because uh, this is increasingly happening. They, they just lie through their teeth. They do, Mike, and in a way that continental Europeans find hard to keep track of. Just this week, I had three very smart young Dutchmen uh, ask me uh, when they visited me what the NHS was all about and why people made a national religion out of it. So I tried to summarise from that 2017 Nottingham conference that we put on called Dying for Good Health, that the Continentals have a Bismarckian model of public health care and Britain and Canada in particular have a direct government taxation model. 
And this made them raise their eyebrows. But what really took the biscuit for them is when I said, and the British governments, being suave uh, anglophones, don't call it a health tax. They call it national insurance and put it in a separate pot with a separate name. At least that's the theory that it's a separate pot. And to put the, the cherry on top, I explained to them that not only had we had in the 1980s onwards the likes of Francis Maud and uh, other N.M. Rothschild types talking about this creeping privatisation, in fact, back to 1968, two decades into the NHS's existence, but uh, more particularly the hedge fund guys and venture capitalists were talking a decade ago about how the profitable no-risk stuff would be hived off. So the NHS uh, free at the point of delivery stuff would be split into um, Britain and Canada and the like guarantee you healthcare as in terms of insurance, but all the stuff that involves liabilities and non-recurrent income, like having to recruit staff and equipment and and, and provide people's healthcare, that's uh, that is outsourced to plebby companies to do. Uh, the smart money is in the centre where you get the subscription model, uh, the tax keeping on rolling in. But let's remember it's called insurance in Britain because we don't like telling the truth. Uh, well, indeed. So thank you very much for that, Alex. Now, uh, the first three years of this extra tax is apparently going to go to the uh, NHS directly. And it's only after that uh, three years period that uh, the money starts being spent on social care. Uh, but the NHS Confederation and also NHS providers uh, are still not happy. Um, so they're saying that uh, this £5.4 billion NHS funding boost is welcome, uh, but the spending review must follow through with an extra £10 billion a year. Uh, and that's needed to avoid patient services being cut. Well, patient services have already been cut, as anybody that, that needs uh, any kind of NHS service at the moment uh, has rapidly discovered over the last uh, 18 months. Um, both these organisations published a report last week which said that uh, the next financial year from April 2022, uh, frontline, frontline NHS would need around 10 billion extra of revenue uh, to keep going. Um, and uh, that, so this current proposal, they say, uh, is leaving a, a three billion pound shortfall. Um, well, we've got a total NHS budget of circa 120 billion. We're going to get another 5.4 and another 10. Yes. And we still can't have a situation where somebody can go and see a GP. Indeed. Yeah. So this is organised breakdown. This is what the disruption's about. And privatisation, probably, at the end of it. Uh, so uh, what about lockdown? Well, the I newspaper yesterday had a story that uh, plans for an October firebreak lockdown, an extension of the uh, October half-term holiday for schools to make it from uh, one week into two weeks. Uh, the Department of Education saying it's not true that government is planning a lockdown or firebreak uh, around the October half-term. Um, but, of course, everybody uh, assuming that that's simply uh, a lie because there have been so many of them from government. Uh, so, uh, Anton LaVey, otherwise known as uh, Nadim Zahawi, uh, was on Sky News yesterday uh, and he, well, he basically said, well, I don't want to. He wouldn't rule it out. He didn't say they were going to do it, but he basically said, I don't want to. And this is increasingly in the language of uh, the prime minister and government ministers at the minute. We don't want to do this. We don't want to introduce vaccine passports. Uh, when they're asked, are you going to introduce vaccine passports? Well, we don't want to. And then they do. So uh, anytime you see, I don't want to, I think we can be sure that that means that they fully intend to. Um, they uh, they said the UK, or at least the SAGE scientists who were talking to the eye about this, uh, this plan for the firebreak uh, lockdown said that uh, the UK is going to enter an extended period of infections and hospitalizations, which are in danger of pushing the NHS beyond breaking point. So the same narrative as last year, 
and could force the government to reintroduce restrictions over the school half-term period at the end of next month. This is essentially the precautionary break that SAID suggested last year. Uh, it would be sensible to have contingency plans and if a lockdown is required, uh, it, uh, it's so to make minimal, make sure it has minimal economic and societal impact. Um, but, uh, well, um, is it going to have any impact other than the we, we almost don't know what, what to say because the message keeps changing. But is this science speaking now, Mike, or is this just the whim of politicians? We've no way of knowing because now we can see the politicians simply saying, well, we'll take scientific advice when we think it's right. But apart from that, we'll just it carry on. has to be the right kind of scientific has, advice. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, where does that take us? It takes us to Alex, I think, and uh, people resigning all of a sudden in the American uh, CDC system. So we have the top two people in the uh, part of the Centers for Disease Control that covers vaccination, because, of course, I beg your pardon, it's not CDC, it's the Food and Drug Administration, FDA. The top two people in the section uh, that oversee uh, vaccination uh, have resigned more or less simultaneously, as covered by, uh, among others, TAP News, which is a most excellent website that has been very loyal to UK Column over the years and uh, has uh, enhanced our reporting with finds of its own. Uh, so it's Dr. Marion Gruber, the director of the FDA's Vaccines Office, and her deputy, Dr. Philip Krauser. They've both resigned and have accused the White House and the parent agency, the Centers of Dis for Disease Control, of pushing booster shots without the supporting data. But a more informed analysis of the timing of their resignations, reports TAP News, arrives at the conclusion that they know about the criminal indictments that are coming against the genocidal vaccine mass murders, and they want no part in. And this, of course, is a, a catchphrase now, Nuremberg 2.0. And if you tap that again, Mike, you will see uh, a nice codicil to the report. Gruber and Krauser, the number one and two for vaccines at the FDA. Why did they jump ship or jump before they were pushed, one of the two? It says that according to a, a New York Times um, uh, report on a source involved, uh, they were upset that the White House had just said you need a booster shot just eight months after receiving your second jab. So they could see that they were being boxed into a corner, that uh, sooner or later they were going to be uh, obliged to say, well, it's not a policy originating with us, but because President Biden and his staff have said so, we're going to have to have this rolling conveyor belt of booster shots. This at a time when, of course, um, Albert Bourla, CEO of Pfizer, is already talking about um, uh, pills, anti-viral uh, pills. Um, and as with uh, AstraZeneca in Britain last year, they're starting production in the confident knowledge that they will get licensed at some point in the future, which is not the way things work before 2020. Uh, indeed, and it's interesting, we don't have it in, the, in today's news programme, but I did notice in passing that AstraZeneca is uh, suggesting to the government, to the British government that they may not want to roll out the, uh, the COVID booster. Uh, what I saw was them saying, uh, because uh, not everybody's going to need it. But I, I do wonder, Alex, if there's some other reason behind this. There could be a number of things, couldn't there? Um, I think the, the the most likely is that the the companies involved are simply maximising their financial position. That would be the simplest and most Occam's razor uh, view. And by saying that, we don't automatically imply that all senior executives at all these companies are guilty of crimes against humanity. That's to be decided in due course when the right arrangements are put in place. But at the very least, their legal and financial ad ad advice, and certainly here in the continent of Europe, that often comes from the same advisors. I expect it's the same in, in Wall Street now. You go to one company 
uh, if you're a Pfizer, and uh, they tell you what's, what the best tax position and the best legal and financial position is all in one go, uh, they'll probably have been advised, well, uh, put your positions up now for, uh, for these booster shots and these pills and anything else you can spin out of it. But of course, it will require freedom of information from the government side of these contracts to find that out. Mm, indeed. Okay, thank you for that, Alex. Well, let's bring in the VAERS system, which is the American uh, Vaccine Adverse Effect Reporting System. Um, this, of course, is now producing a lot of data and a lot of people paying attention to it and a lot of concerns as a result of that attention. Um, but we need to flag up, first of all, that this system at least does have a searchable database. Um, so you can go into that data, you can search for particular problems, medical problems, and you will come up with the information that's been collected. And also, um, contrary to the UK MHRA yellow card system, the VAERS system does um, have a reasonable amount of data around the circumstances that took place when the adverse effect occurred. So the age, the sex of the person, they're in hospital, uh, what other... Um, information was present at the time is all collected by the VAERS system. This doesn't appear to be the case at all with the MHRA. But of course, we'd like to flag up that the MHRA still does not have a searchable uh, database. Uh, the data it puts out appears to be deliberately haphazard and confused. And we would say that is so that the uh, UK population continues to be deceived about vaccine risks. And it's taken the uh, UK column to provide the searchable MHRA yellow card database front end, which um, might that's been going particularly well, people coming to that because they know they can come to UK column and search that information. Uh, but a lot of concerns uh, coming up and uh, key concerns around vaccinations in pregnancy. I've just taken this excerpt from the uh, NHS website to show the sort of I'm going to call it a glib statement that they can make. It's, it's um, really saying, well, you're pregnant. That's not a problem. It's preferable for you to have the Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna vaccine because they're more widely used. And the NHS is simply not telling pregnant uh, women any of the information around risks. Um, other people um, are supposedly doing work on this. Now, this is going back to May uh, 2021, but we got the University of Southampton first UK COVID-19 vaccine study for pregnant women. Uh, but most people would say at the moment there is still no high quality um, research information showing that pregnant women are safe uh, from the vaccine. And then we have other information coming to the fore. Uh, of course, this is not being talked about in the in the mainstream media. The BBC certainly not talking about these important issues. Uh, but Great Game India here uh, has got the factual story because this comes from the VAERS data itself of a breastfeeding baby who dies of blood clots and inflamed arteries after the mother's Pfizer shot. So this is not a conspiracy theory. This is using the US data itself in order to show uh, risk to the population from those vaccine adverse effects. Now, we're delighted to say that uh, last night we were able to conduct an interview with a lady called Christine Cotton. Uh, she's a very experienced pharmaceutical statistician. Um, I'll just bring up some of her qualifications 
on screen here, but essentially she's got 23 years experience in the pharmaceutical industries and she's run her own company in this field, clinical research, and uh, she's been a subcontractor to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so she has a huge amount of experience. She's also got a huge amount of concern about the vaccine adverse effects that are now evident in the VAERS data. And uh, we were able to talk to her and uh, get her opinion on what's happening. Now, I'm going to say the full interview will be released in the next few days, but we've just taken a very short excerpt here for our viewers for the UK Column News today. Uh, Christine is French. Uh, she speaks good English, a little bit of an accent. Uh, we'll see if we can help out some uh, subscripts for that. But uh, let's listen to what she said to me last night. Yes, I would like to show this one. It's a 32 woman who reports uh, death for death of a daughter. And she, say, uh, she says she died in her sleep. The cause of death is not known. I am reporting her death here because of the relative proximity of my vaccination and her death. So, so this, this was a breastfed infant, yeah, a daughter exactly. that dies following so, the mother having a vaccination. Exactly. So, so if we look at pregnancy issues, so I, I had to compute uh, the pregnancy status because we don't have this uh, data uh, directly into the, the database. Uh, so we have al almost 2,000, uh, more than 2,000 women uh, pregnant. Uh, I computed the abortion uh, and the fetal death uh, anomaly of the fetus, etc., or premature uh, delivery. So if I take only the CDC uh, variable is this one. We have uh, here, congenital anomaly birth defect. So I don't know what they put in this birth defect. Uh, but if uh, we just describe this um, variable, we have only 100 uh, pregnant uh, woman with a problem. If I compute premature delivery, abortion or fetal disorders, I have 35% of pregnant women. And if I um, look at abortion of fetal death, I have almost uh, 28%. And if I uh, compute uh, my computation or the CDC variable, I have 36%. So it's a huge, um, very, very big number, I think, because I, in, uh, in real life, uh, I'm pretty sure that you don't have 30, uh, more than 30% of, um, of pregnant women who lose their baby. So it's a huge number. So this, this was a, a very in-depth assessment uh, by, by Christine Cotton. And of course, what she's focusing on there is damage to uh, babies um, prior, to, prior to birth. So babies being aborted, babies being lost. And she is saying all the evidence is present in the VAERS data 
but it's taken her expertise to get in amongst this and to really highlight um, highlight these issues for for a wider um, viewer, a wider audience is the word I'm looking for, a wider audience. Uh, now, at the beginning of the interview, Christine Cotton also explains why, in her opinion, her expert opinion, it was simply not possible for the vaccine companies uh, to go from identifying the virus to setting up the vaccine and to conducting experiments to ensure the safety of those vaccines in the times that they've said. All of that will be um, will become uh, visible when we get the full interview out. Alex, I think you have a question. We should just point out for uh, non-medics in English, if they hear abortion, they would tend to think of what medics call abortus provocatus. But on the continent, abortion covers miscarriage as well. The word covers miscarriage. So uh, what is being said here by Christine Cotton is that over a third of the uh, babies of mothers in these uh, uh, statistics ended with miscarriage or fetal abnormality or premature delivery. So uh, it's not a question of women despairing and having abortions, as we would say in colloquial English. It is that the fetus spontaneously aborted. Uh, and that, of course, applies to the MHRA data as well, because that's the category uh, and the terminology used uh, in that data too. Indeed. And I'll just, uh, I'll just add that Christine said to us last night that the, the amount of data in the VAERS system is, is growing exponentially. She's now handling over a half a million lines of data to see what's actually happening in America. But uh, let's jump to another document which uh, raises some interesting questions. This is the document. It's called The SPARS Pandemic 2025-2028. Uh, this is a futuristic scenario for public health risk communicators and it was produced by St. John's Hopkins Center for Health. I think the year was to, uh, 2017. Um, so it's a look into the future, uh, but this was done into 2017. Uh, so it's talking about an outbreak. The SPARS outbreak begins um, and it goes through until we come to a very interesting chapter, chapter 17, where it says vaccine inquiry. And if you go into this uh, particular um, chapter, it says this, while the FDA, CDC and other agencies were busy researching possible connections between Corovax and the reported neurological side effects, their efforts were continually undermined by epidemiological analysis produced by various non-government individuals and groups. A popular science blogger, EpiGirl, for example, began posting interactive maps of the incidence of coronavirus side effects in April 2027. To create the maps, EpiGirl collected anecdotes of adverse coronavirus side effects using Facebook, Twitter and YouTube and combined them with data downloaded from the HHS Vaccine Adverse Effects Reporting System, VAERS, a national vaccine safety surveillance program maintained by the CDC and FDA. EpiGirl also encouraged those amongst her subscribers who were Apple product users to share health data with her via Apple's research kit and health kit applications. EpiGirl's maps were consequently shared widely in social media circles and even included in local and national news reports. Now, what's remarkable about this statement is, of course, this was written in 2017 as a look into the future 
but clearly it was advising government and administrators like the VAERS system uh, that the public was going to become capable of looking at the government's own data uh, of adverse effects and uh, echoing this back to the public, thereby causing problems to their uh, plan uh, during the, um, the virus epidemic. So either this was an incredible crystal ball or we are seeing a very um, callous um, political policy that was carefully thought through way back. It must have been before 2017, because it was 2017 when the document was uh, published. Alex. The previous year, 2016, the British government held its exercise Cygnus, which had many sub-exercises that the British government is still dragging its feet about disclosing the details of, but Exercise Cygnus identified, secret at the time, ah, British government, you have a problem. Since Harold Shipman, uh, you require uh, two doctors to sign off on a death certificate, and we can't have that next pandemic. It will clog up the system. Similarly, the next year there in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins, uh, the, the, the venue of choice for things like uh, sparse pandemic scenarios and event 201 scenarios, of course, uh, because it's right down the road from the US uh, main biowarfare center, um, what they're saying there in the paragraph you read out is a dog whistle, isn't it? It's saying you need to shut down this capability in VAERS and towards the end of the paragraph, you need to lean on Apple uh, to shut down the health uh, data sharing facility. That's the only uh, reading I can make of it, really. Which is in order to deceive the public, of course. Um, well, the question of uh, you know the, the the regulation of of vaccines and so on, and whether they, their approval is valid or not, uh, more research is being done. Uh, and Doctors for COVID Ethics have uh, published this today: uh, regulation or racket. UK drug regulator never inspected the Pfizer vaccine study data. And uh, well, this uh, is reinforcing information which is already out there. We've reported on this in the past. But uh, it's very interesting what uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics are saying. So they asked uh, under Freedom of Information three questions in, in the first they, of the first of two Freedom of Information requests. They asked for any documents requesting access from the sponsor, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, to the raw data, which is patient level, level anonymized data or equivalent patient level data. Uh, they asked for confirmation as to whether the MHRI holds the patient level data approximately 70,000 records from these applications or whether these were restricted from access or assessment by the sponsor. Uh, if they were supplied, the format in which the records were supplied and how they were hosted at the MHRA, for example, paper or electronic database. Um, and uh, they also asked for any documents confirming that a process for analyzing the raw data from the sponsor was undertaken uh, and that the result of that process, e.g. Minute, meeting minutes or equivalent, including the qualifications and names, if appropriate, of the committee, if any, uh, which has undertaken the review of the raw data. Um, and uh, well, what did they get back? Uh, well, they got uh, a, a response basically saying that they don't hold that information, but they then followed up with uh, uh, this one. Thank and uh, this is the response they got back from Public Health England this time because they followed up with Public Health England. Thank you for your request. Uh, received on the 31st of July, 2021, addressed to Public Health England. Uh, in accordance with the Freedom of Information Act, I confirm that uh, PHE partly holds the information you've specified. Uh, I've answered your questions in the, uh, in the order raised. So the request in this case was, I'm writing to request all documents relating to the independent analysis by Public Health England of the full Pfizer dataset as referenced in the Commission on Human Medicines meeting 
held on the 24th of December 2020, and they provided an extract. Uh, the documents should include but not be limited to the executive summary of the analysis and the full summary of the analysis and the responses in accordance with Section 11A of the FOI Act. PHE can confirm it does not hold this information. There was no executive summary or full summary of the analysis as suggested by your request. Uh, and so Doctors for COVID Ethics goes on to say the PHE response goes on to state that uh, it is not the case that PHE had access to the full Pfizer data set. Um, so they're saying this begs the question, who outside of Pfizer has verified and analyzed Pfizer's trial data? Why should the public take Pfizer's word on the results of their own investigations? What tens of billions of dollars in profits are at stake? What is the true role of medical regulators if their approach to any marketing authorization is to outsource data validation to a body that fails to even obtain, let alone uh, inspect the manufacturer's data? And that, of course, is Public Health England. So these are all uh, fantastic uh, questions and the answers are spectacular uh, because, again, we've got evidence that uh, MHRA, MHRA and also Public Health England, neither of them actually reviewed in any uh, serious way the data provided by Pfizer. Uh, I assume it's the same for AstraZeneca. And perhaps that gives us an indication as to why they're so lax about their running of the yellow card data base, for example, um, because they don't seem to care whether there are errors in it or whether it's correct or not, or they're not really taking it seriously. Now, I'm just going to remind everybody, Brian's mentioned it already. If you go to yellowcard.ukcolumn.org, you will find a front end. You click on the big button on the, on, the, on the front page there to view the adverse reaction data from the MHRA. Now, we got an email a couple of days ago uh, from a guy called Justin, and let me just read it to you. It said, you are showing, this is on the yellow card uh, database, you are showing 15 fatalities from the Moderna vaccine this week, yet last week it was 17. I use these statistics to warn people of the dangers with experimental vaccines, but cannot present these latest figures with this type of discrepancy. And the suggestion was that it was our discrepancy. I want to just remind everybody that this is not our data. This is the MHRA's data. And any discrepancies are the MHRA's. We have highlighted discrepancies in the MHRA data in the past, and the, these discrepancies continue. And I'm just going to remind everybody once again uh, that uh, in 2020, the MHRA spent £1.5 million uh, purchasing uh, and in the process uh, completely bypassing the normal procurement procedures in order to purchase uh, an artificial intelligence system in order to manage the reporting of yellow card data and to date, they have not provided any public access to that AI system. We don't know, in fact, whether the MHRA uh, is making use of that system, if it is, the system is actually operational, if that was money well spent. All they produce are, data, are, are uh, spreadsheets, which are published in PDF format each week. Um, and what's very interesting about that is that each week they publish the latest uh, data, but they remove access to the previous data. So you cannot take uh, the uh, spreadsheet from or the PDF document from this week and compare it to last week's. Now, Justin has highlighted that in the case of the Moderna vaccine, the, the two people seem to have been resurrected or they're no longer dead or something. We don't know where the error was. Was the error last week or was the error this week? We don't know. It, another question that people have about the yellow card data is why are there more uh, reactions 
to reports than there are reports. And the question is because, uh, no, sorry, it, sorry, the answer is because, thank you. The answer <laughs> is because uh, each uh, report will have several reactions potentially. So there, but the, the issue with the data is we have no way of knowing uh, which reactions go with which report. Now, Brian has made the point that in the VARES database, it's better. It's not perfect by any it's means, better. but it's better. But the MHRA's data is appalling in this area, and we need to keep the pressure on to try to get to the bottom of exactly what's going on. For example, uh, just something very simple that we might want to know is, is there any commonality in combinations of reactions? Uh, we can't find that out under the current reporting system. And one of the reasons that we put together uh, the Yellow Card website was to really highlight the fact that the MHR's, MHRA's data is frankly rubbish. Well, I, I don't think we can call it rubbish, Mike, because this is calculated. But I think we have to say that the MHRA is deliberately confusing its own data in order to mislead the public. And in doing that, it can't possibly be carrying out its role of protecting public safety from vaccine adverse effects. So I think we must be starting to look into the criminal realm with the activities of the MHRA. Sorry, a bit tough on that, but... Uh... No, fair enough. No problem with anything that you've said there. Now, uh, let's uh, have a look at a new uh, bill. This is the COVID-19 vaccine damage bill. This is a private member's bill. Now, because it's a private member's bill, it is unlikely without some kind of... Uh, real support uh, that this will progress very far. But this bill has been pushed into Parliament by Sir Christopher Chope. Um, it is a bill to require the Secretary of State to establish an independent review of disablement caused by COVID-19 vaccinations and the adequacy of the compensation offered uh, to persons so disabled and for connected purposes. Uh, it's had its first reading uh, and it's heading for its second reading on the 10th of September, which is Friday. Now, many people are asking, what can I do? Well, this might be a good start. You need to, I think, I'm going to propose that everybody needs to be contacting their MPs and making sure that this bill gets a proper hearing in Parliament. That means that it doesn't just disappear. Um, it is a private member's bill, and without government support, private member's bill effectively don't go anywhere. Uh, so perhaps what is needed is cross-party support uh, from um, individual MPs, and the only way that's going to happen is if people demand it of their MPs. Yeah. Um, just one of the things uh, I'll add, and I think I'm correct in saying this, I think that in the sparse pandemic prediction that we've just uh, shown on screen, um, in relation to EpiGirl, so when it is suggesting governments will be getting nervous because the public is starting to look at the real data, one of the things that will happen is that there will be an attempt to uh, get a vaccine damage bill into existence. So um, absolutely fascinating this has happened and I think we'll need to do more work between the reality of this bill and uh, what the SPARS pandemic document seemed to be able to forecast with amazing accuracy. Um, I just want to, uh, uh, to finish this section, uh, highlight this website, No More Silence. Uh, more and more cases appearing on this is, uh, is carrying a database of people that have uh, passed away uh, immediately following uh, vaccination with COVID-19 vaccines uh, and that uh, the numbers are growing on a daily basis on this. So uh, people may want to have a look at that. Yeah, tragic. Yes. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated and uh, continued uh, support is very much needed as well.
indeed um right where do we go from, from well just a reminder well, to just share. remind people of uh, where you can watch us and see uh, we just wanted to say that uh lost track of my days now on monday we uh we put out this uh, somebody had received uh this apparently from the nhs we recently checked and we can see you're eligible for a pass providing you've uh for a, for a pass proving you have been vaccinated and you can apply for it here now what we said at the time was that this was very interesting because the person who received it was unvaccinated well, a number of people have contacted us and essentially said, we think it's a scam. So this one says, case it hasn't been spotted already. This is just a quick note regarding the text message supposedly coming from the NHS mentioned in the 6th of September episode. I'm quite sure it's a scam message and the internet address application form hyphen nhs.com quoted in the message is not real site. Look it up on a few who is tools provided and the who is look up for nhs.uk, the real NHS site. Um, it says, goes on, says, with any other scam, this is most probably intended to harvest details and plant a computer virus on the device of anyone to visit the site. So we recognise that uh, we were reported it factually as, as, as it was given to us. We take the analysis that our viewers are giving us. We just add the extra comment that what does this do? Well, it highlights the increased risk to personal data security from the NHS's own VAX updates and tracking system for which they refuse to take any uh, to be accountable. Mm. So uh, watch out for these uh, spoof messages from the NHS. Uh, well, from not the NHS. Well, sorry, from not the NHS. Yes, indeed. Sorry, Freudian slip. Yes. Alex, uh, uh, we're going to support a campaign to repeal the unjustifiable and dangerous coronavirus act. I think this is a very important uh, call. It comes from the site that still has the URL conservative woman, but it now calls itself TCW, as we've recently co uh, covered, because they were fed up uh, with being confused with the Conservative Party, which is the Marxist Party. And they now have the banner line defending freedom. Now their editor in chief, Kathy Gingle, um, makes some points, which I was on the point of making last week. So I'm glad she's made them independently, that in many Western countries, the liberal parties in the middle of the political spectrum are less corrupt than the centre right and centre left parties. For example, the Liberal Democrats in the UK, the FDP in Germany, and some other examples in the Western world are the only mainstream parties at party policy level not to want vaccine passports. So Cathy is um, linking uh, later in this piece the link to the petition involved, and it is an official parliamentary petition they're setting up. So this isn't just a useless petition. This is one that puts uh, that holds your members of parliament's feet to the fire. Uh, and what she's suggesting is that if you have a conservative um, uh, Labour or um, a Scottish National Party uh, MP, you tell them specifically that not you're going to vote for um, uh, or withhold your vote or vote for um, an, an unlikely to succeed uh, uh, individual candidate, independent. No, you should tell them, if it is uh, remotely plausible in your constituency, that you'll transfer your vote to the Liberal Democrats on this specific issue or to any other person independently who stands on that platform. So this is the kind of browbeating, I'm afraid, that needs to succeed uh, with MPs. Nothing else will get through to them. So do go to TCW or Conservative Women Co UK and find Cathy Gingles' uh, piece, go through to the petition and sign it, because uh, it's a recent statutory 
change in Britain if a certain uh, the threshold is passed, 100,000 signatories, I believe it is, um, Parliament is obliged to table a debate on it. So then they have to show their colours. Now, another email has come in, this time from a British expatriate on Queensland's sunny central coast in the northeast of Australia. And this viewer was a little ticked off, frankly, at the coverage uh, uh, last week of uh, Talisman Sabre, which, uh, as with the piece that Brian just held his hand up to, uh, we did have to cover hastily. And I will accept responsibility for not having searched fully and found the details publicly available of Royal Marines 4-0 Commando involvement and the US Marines involvement as well in this exercise. It turns out it is a recurrent biennial exercise. But what does the viewer have to say? Uh, he says that uh, he has been connected to this operation or exercise Talisman Sabre via being involved in port operations up there. It's in. It's every other year at Rockhampton, up near Cairns, um, one of the world's largest, largest military areas. Nothing to do with the China war scenario. The US Marines are often down there for it, although the Brits not often, uh, except a tiny UK component, this time a bit more. 4-0 Commando was involved in there. He goes on to wrap us over the knuckles uh, that we took a ridiculous angle while discussing photos of US aircraft. Now, the viewer says he's travelled through this airport, Rockhampton Airport. It's the main staging hub on many occasions when Talisman Sabre is underway and there are large numbers of US service personnel flying on in the big beasts, the C-17s uh, and the commercial charters. They even have their own check-in desk for their, uh, because they, they bring in uh, their helicopters and C-130s to that base. He went on to say, uh, why don't you, um, this is a separate item by the way, he, oh, this viewer went on to say, um, basically do your research and uh, well, I will accept his point. Uh, but by the same token, uh, you are, dear viewers, and here's a fine example of an expatriate in, in Australia who wrote this. You are our researchers. Uh, we are not the BBC. We don't have the Manning. And uh, we have a, a continual judgment call when something looks like it may be a fairly unique lead to go with it and ask in all honesty for more information. And yes, we can sometimes uh, scope things by Internet searching. But can I very gently suggest that the individual viewers who send us the initial leads could also do a bit more Internet searching and a bit more rewinding of a bit of our output rather than um, emailing us all the time saying, um, what was that thing you mentioned? I didn't quite hear it. You know, this is a very gentle and friendly way of saying uh, if you, our viewers, are the researchers, and by the same token, um, we expect some kind of research uh, effort by you as well, where you're able to provide it. But we will hold our hand up, or I will personally, that I should have checked that on Talisman Sabre. Now over to Tennessee, one of the most hopeful states in the USA for resistance of tyranny. And, uh, and a viewer writes in from there that over 40 members of the state legislature have signed a letter requesting the governor and the attorney general of the state use their legal and executive power to resist two proposed rules from the federal level ATF, uh, the agency that brought you the Waco massacre, uh, spearheaded by the uh, federal level House of Representatives Criminal Justice Subcommittee Chairman Clay Doggett, members of the General Assembly in, Texas, in Tennessee who are writing into their governor say that these rules for uh, reduce for limiting uh, weapons ownership, despite the Second Amendment to the Constitution, pose a looming threat to our God-given rights, and that the creation of law by agency regulation sets a dangerous and unlawful precedent. Uh, the press release that uh, accompanies the letter goes on to state that the letter echoes members of Congress at federal level and a number of state attorneys general 
who have voiced concern over the ATF's recent rule changes. And they go, they close by requesting that the Governor and Attorney General refuse to enforce such arbitrary and illegal rulings and activate legal means and law enforcement powers of the state as necessary to prevent that federal body, ATF, from providing, f- providing for its own enforcement as if it were judge, jury and executioner within the state. Hint, the other 49 states could do the same. It's called state nullification. And it's a a doctrine that's being rediscovered in our days. Uh, The chairman of the subcommittee, Dockett, said our Second Amendment freedoms come at the price of constant vigilance against moves like these from our current administration, which are nothing short of an attempt to enforce federal gun control by bureaucracy. Let's have a quick look at the letter that was sent by the various uh, representatives in the Tennessee State House. Uh, They say, dear Governor Lee, uh, if you go on, um, just a couple of extracts. They say that... uh, uh, the ATF has shown, shown nice, no sign of remorse or willingness to rescind their actions uh, in the threat of the face of this looming threat to our God-given rights. We request that you, the governor, reject these illegal actions and refuse to enforce our other unlawful uh, executive edicts. So the two proposals in question, we won't go into detail, but one of them uh, it, it seeks to lead to mandatory registration by the back door. The other proposed rule uh, is going to uh, basically bring uh, many pistols, AR-15s, which does not stand for automatic uh, rifle, by the way. That's a, a commonly held uh, fallacy, um, to bring many of them under registration requirements. And they can conclude this creation of law by agency regulation, you know, this is the undoing of the separation of powers, sets a a dangerous and unlawful precedent. So Tennessee often is in the vanguard here, but many other states may be considering the same. And regardless of what you're told about your political system, if you're outside the USA, certainly in the common law world, a lot of these doctrines do apply in your country. It's just that you won't get many qualified lawyers admitting to that. So if, you, if you're in the States and are, or are otherwise interested in the right to keep and bear arms, which is historically known as the, one of the birthrights of Englishmen, and uh, has not been rescinded by law in any English-speaking country, despite what you've been told. The rules in question are on screen at the moment, 86 FR 27720 and 86 FR 30826. And you can find them from the federalregister.gov. OK, thank you, Alex. Uh, but, well, uh, democracy uh, needs to be supported uh, in the uh, in the UK. And, uh, well, let's... Uh, sorry, we'll... <laughs> That's a future story. We'll get onto this one first. Uh, here's Amanda Soloway, the uh, the science minister, uh, and she's saying uh, we're putting science and innovation at the heart of our efforts to build back better from the pandemic. Uh, that should make us all feel good. Uh, this is the British government, of course. They're going to empower their scientific leaders of tomorrow to drive forward game-changing research that could improve all our lives and boost the UK. And so what they're talking about is... Uh, uh, more money, hundreds of several, I think in this case, 113 million pounds on top of uh, 360 or so million that's already announced uh, to go to build, designing new four-legged robots for farmers and stuff like this. But it's the leaders of tomorrow uh, that is the key feature here, I think, because this isn't really about uh, uh, funding uh, decent scientific research. This is about producing uh, future leaders, Brian. And so the money is going to be uh, divested through this organization via the UK Research and Innovation, but it's the Future Leaders Fellowships these are described as. Um, and uh, so I thought that was quite interesting. I thought it was quite interesting, particularly because in parallel with this, uh, Barbara Woodward, who's the U- uh, UK's representative at the United Nations, was giving a speech uh, to the Security Council, but not to the Security Council, to the elders. Now, Alex, I don't know if you've heard of the elders, uh, but it's it's a group of people uh, that aren't really that well 
uh, known or understood. Um, now here uh, are four of them, uh, but this isn't all of them. They're, that's in the Security Council chamber. Um, the elders, well, the original concept was devised by Richard Branson and Peter Gabriel. Uh, it was launched in 2007. Nelson Mandela, of course, was involved in that. Uh, they are supposed to be a, an independent group of global leaders working together for peace and human rights. Uh, they provide an independent voice, not bound by the interests of any nation, government or institution. Um, and uh, you'll find all kinds of uh, foundations involved with it, the United Nations Foundation, the Skoll Foundation, Humanity United, so Otto Meyer and so on. Uh, and they produced the Elder Strategic F Framework, which was uh, directed towards the uh, United Nations Development Goals. Um, and uh, we've got the United Nations Climate Change Agenda right in the center of this as well. They uh, launched the Carbon War Room, whose vision is a world where over $1 trillion is invested in climate change solutions in an annual occurrence, not a historic milestone. Uh, and it also involves the World Leadership Alliance, Club de Madrid, uh, which partners with governments, intergovernment organizations, so civil society, scholars, and business world to bolster social and political change. So uh, the elders are all about leadership. Uh, and uh, these future leaders that the, the UK government is now uh, investing in in order to provide uh, future scientific uh, innovation, uh, these future leaders are mainly focused on things like uh, uh, climate change uh, innovation, uh, and also artificial intelligence and data and, and I think, these kinds of things. I think we're going to say gene editing as well, which uh, will come on Life sciences is absolutely part and parcel of this indeed. So, so Alex, I don't know what you make of these types of uh, groups uh, of people that have been involved in politics in the past that effectively become globalist elder statesmen, as it were, uh, and suddenly we're finding uh, policy uh, being promoted through these types of uh, so-called independent voices. If people aren't subscribers, they will miss out on extra time after the news, so they won't hear our coverage of an extremely good German speaker laying out the chapter and verse on the future and leaders, future leaders concept. But in general terms, uh, when the current bunch uh, of globalists realized in the mid 90s at financial level downwards that the model was bust, they decided to put in place a system of training the next generation of politicians to think globalistically. And uh, hence, in 2007, Mandela was the front man for it, but I don't think he was the brains. Um, the, the elders was put into being to subvert the oaths of office. Let's be constitutional about it. To subvert the oaths of office of heads of state and government and, uh, and state ministers uh, in various territories, not forgetting the judiciary, which is e increasingly risible in many countries in its claims to be independent of the state. Um, uh, what's interesting is that when Mandela gave the founding interview, or the launch interview in 2007 to BBC Radio 4, uh, his brains were already going a bit by that time. But uh, what he said was, uh, you see, it's very lonely at the top and you might need to, to take a very unpopular decision and only one of uh, your own uh, your own rank or your own kind will be will be a, a suit, suitable confidential shoulder to cry on of course what he didn't say was why are these unpopular for which read unconstitutional and unlawful decisions having to be taken by health ministers and presidents and the like uh, because of uh, orders being whispered sideways or from on high from places that constitutions don't envisage uh, here in the Netherlands of course we don't like to be outdone we like to have homegrown homegrown versions of most of these 
these uh, Anglo initiatives. So in The Hague, there is another body called the Owls with overlapping membership to the elders, which is of similar uh, bent. So people with an interest in The Hague might not like to look into that. Uh, they don't like being in the news unless they can help it. And, and usually it's when they release white papers. That's when they come out in the open. Owls fly at dusk, of course. Of course they do. Uh, now, uh, does the French state exist? That's uh, what uh, Europe Reloaded is asking. Yes, this is a good transcript of an interview with a, a, a person of quite mainstream um, or so social acceptability. It's Valérie Bugot, who is a doctor of law at the Sorbonne in Paris, no less. She has a reputation for being called the iconoclast in law because she teaches legal philosophy. The Continentals do actually do legal philosophy pretty well when they do it well. And at this point in the interview, she is setting out in that transcript that both on the ground, de facto, and at law, de jure, because the French state claims to be la république and then just the embodiment of the national will and all these French revolutionary concepts, therefore it's, it hoists itself by its own petard. Now that the French institutions are simply instituting global mandates and orders with no reference to the people's sovereignty or law, they have wound themselves up. You know, people on the continent might be thinking we're left out by all this talk of common law. But here, you in the civil law jurisdictions have a leg to stand on because the whole point of enshrining the idea of human rights and legitimacy and um, uh, all mandates coming from parliament and whatnot, if you have that in your system, then if you have the, the gumption to say it, it also means that when these states start behaving high-handedly, they have ceased to exist. That's the main point that Dr. Bugo is making uh, in that interview. So once again, as with Catherine Cotton, um, sorry, Caroline Cotton, you find that, uh, Catherine, isn't it? You find that the French are ahead in saying things that are pretty obviously true and we're behind. Um, another indication of the superciliousness of the British legal establishment is that the House Journal of Solicitors in England and Wales, the Law Society Gazette, has had its deputy news editor, John Hyde, uh, write this uh, rather nasty little piece, ban anti-vaxxers from the office, question mark, it's not as simple as that. Why does Mr. Hyde say it's not as simple as that? Uh, he says here, basically, it's to do with those plebs, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the legal uh, typists, the office cleaners and so on. They are not Oxbridge types and BBC watchers. And therefore, you might want to institute a, a US-style double jab requirement in order to come back and work at the legal partnership. And he frankly says that this might be, might be something that the partners swallow, the, the fee earners, as he calls them. But let's look at his key sentence here. He says that uh, the issue with insisting on vaccines to come into the office is about practicality. Quote, I am told by someone trying to implement this policy, in other words, double jabbed or you don't come in, that support staff are more likely to have refused the jab than fee earners. These same support staff, receptionists, security, catering, are the ones whose presence in the office is most required. Oh, there's a frank admission. So people may actually wish to go to that piece, click on the author's name, John Hyde, and send polite and lawful and reasonable comments to the email address that's given there uh, as to what they think of this policy. Uh, he's not, of course, mandating a policy or endorsing it. He's, he's posing as simply an opinion writer here. But uh, you can see what he's trying to suggest, that uh, it's, it's the lower orders that are the problem. Um, staying in British legal territory, although the caveat, it's a bit grainy, but the caveat on screen says that this organisation, Legal Advice Network, uh, directed by Edward Lowe, is not a solicitor or barrister company. It's not a law firm. They are not within the scope of the Legal Services Act 2007, so they are not providing uh, solicitor or barrister 
guidance, as it were, but they are noticing certain things which people in care settings may wish to know about in all parts of the UK, certainly England and Wales, now that we're told that there's a, some kind of pseudo-legal requirement for them to be jabbed. Um, the, uh, Edward Lowe, the director of the Legal Advice Network, starts off by observing, and this is a letter to Sajid Javid and others that he's made into an open letter. He, he observes that the coronavirus regulations of the current year have a regulation paragraph that says that um, you need to uh, satisfy your uh, employer in a care home that you have been vaccinated with the complete course of doses of an authorised vaccine. So that's what the Health Secretary, Mr Javid, is putting out in his regulations. Okay, let's go on to see more detail of what Edward Lowe of Legal Advice Network has to say. However, a later section, 45E, says that Regulations made to that extent may not include provision that requires a person to undergo medical treatment. Okay, so it's a paper tiger of a regulation, not even a proper statute. And the definition of medical treatment in Mr. Javid's regulation includes vaccination and other prophylactic treatment. So in other words, that later quoted section of the Public Health Act, sorry, that's the parent legislation we're on to now, not the 2021, the parent legislation, the primary legislation from 1984 that enabled that regulation, uh, that overrides the current year regulation. And back in 84, Parliament said you're not going to be able to mandate medical treatment. Uh, so uh, there's no enforceability, Mr Lowe argues, uh, for what's in the uh, regulations that have come out this year. He goes on to talk about clinical reasons for not vaccinating and says that the Health and Social Care Act 2008, uh, and uh, sorry, it's a, it's a 2014 bill referring to 2008, uh, also states that a registered person, that's a care home worker who's being told you've got to be jabbed, dear, they must... Um, uh, the care home must secure that person does not enter the premises used by the person unless there is evidence that satisfies them. It gets quite convoluted at this point, but don't worry, Edward Lowe draws it to a conclusion on the next slide. Uh, he says that at no time when the government explained its plans to vaccinate care workers or others, do we recall the government tempering that advice, uh, that's, that's polite language for being, uh, being honest, by explaining that there would be valid clinical reasons for not being vaccinated. So uh, because they fail to say that, Mr Lowe says uh, the, um, the regulations in place are at best disingenuous uh, because media is awash with workers feeling coerced to vaccinate to save their jobs, being harassed to get vaccinated and leaving their jobs because they want to jump the ship, uh, jump before they're pushed. And doubtless some of those would have been clinically exempt. Final uh, piece of um, advice from Edward Lowe here or, or observations, if you like. A proportion of workers will have been caused harm, here we come down to it, by coercion, harassment and loss of income due to the failure of the government to advise workers, care and others, that there would be a clinical exemption to being vaccinated, despite the fact that the requirement was never going to be enforceable. What steps is he going to take next? Mr Lowe has written to Javid about this and of course he says whatever your response is, it will likely be moot. Because the Parent Act, the 1984 primary legislation that actually went through Parliament and got enacted properly, makes the enforcement of the current year's regulation redundant and unenforceable. We suggest that the Care Quality Commission must now immediately issue the instruction to care homes, care providers, to stop telling workers that they need to be vaccinated because they do not. If you do not understand any aspect of this latter letter, we su suggest you seek competent and independent legal advice. I like that finishing touch by Edward Lowe. He's casting back in the government's teeth the kind of snooty tone it often takes with members of the public when they write to them. 
Yeah. Indeed. Well, that sets out a number of uh, issues very clearly. And of course, it's giving people power to do things. So we hope people will go back and freeze the screen to read those documents carefully. Uh, Mike, you've introduced um, elders. You've also talked about the new scientific leaders. I think this man comes under both those uh, categories. It's Klaus Schwab from uh, the World Economic Forum. Um, let's just pop him up on screen. Sorry, can we do oh, Here we are. Um, just uh, so that people can identify him. But he's a man who seems to be able to stand up and tell anybody and everybody in the world how they should run their lives and how they will run their lives in the future. This is a remarkable video clip from 2015, which one of our viewers spotted. Thank you for sending it in. I don't know the source of the video, so I can't attribute it. If somebody knows where it's actually come from, I think it will be from the World Economic Forum itself. Uh, but as it stands, it is him on screen. Listen very carefully to what this man says. The difference of this first uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take a genetic editing, right. uh, just as an example, it's you who exactly. are changed. Yeah. And of yeah. course, this has a big impact on yeah. your identity. Yeah. And offers certain kinds of possibilities that have to be careful about. You know, yeah. when you began to... When you began to do that kind of gene editing, some people worry that you are changing what it means to be human. That's the problem. And, yeah. uh, it, uh, of course, the new uh, Industrial Revolution offers us many opportunities, but it raises many fold questions on the ethical, but even legal uh, implications. And we have to be prepared for it. And that's what we want to do in Davos next year. Talk about technology and how the ways it can be deployed, uh, you know, that contribute to growth rather than exacerbate unemployment. How will that implement itself? It's a big question mark because uh, there is a fear that uh, technology, robots, uh, just to take yeah. one yeah. You gain element. productivity from machines. Exactly. And it replaces maybe um, the workforce or jobs faster than we can replace them with the new jobs. Uh, not everybody can be a, a robot polisher and so yes. on. So yes. there will be new jobs. So a number of things summed up uh, in a very short video clip. Um, gene editing, which is going to come with the fourth industrial revolution, is going to change your, your whole makeup as a human being. And this man seems to find this quite amusing. He says casually, well, there may be some moral issues or possibly some, some uh, issues at law, but uh, really this is all going to come through but he's talking about changing people as a human being by the gene editing. And then he casually says, well, you may get a job possibly as a robot polisher. Um, so I would say a very, very dangerous individual, of course, not voted into any position of power. He simply assumed it, but this is where the um, uh, pan-global policy is coming from. If you want to find out more detail about what he's talking about and encourage people to do it, go and have a look at the World Economic Forum website. Here's five things you need to know about CRISPR and gene editing in the COVID, area, uh, COVID era. Um, these are three of the key statements. Precision medicine is playing a key role in helping scientists understand COVID-19. That's a remarkable statement where we're seeing the adverse effects and there's no explanation of them. 
CRISPR-based diagnostics will help rapidly and accurately diagnose a wide range of diseases, including the novel coronavirus. Well, that doesn't seem to be working too well at the moment. And the evolution of gene testing and gene editing will drive the future of healthcare. So this is where we see the real policy coming through in the UK and the US and Europe. Uh, this is not nationally derived healthcare policy. This is coming out of global think tanks like the World Economic Forum. And uh, if we just very quickly bring up on screen so people can freeze this and have a look at it, uh, this is detail about the CRISPR system uh, of uh, gene editing. Uh, but it says international borders, workplaces, homes, and maybe even concerts, conferences, or other large events could benefit greatly from having tests for COVID-19 and other diseases uh, that give gold standard results within minutes. This is pretty optimistic. During a pandemic, this type of information is critical for fully reporting, uh, for fully reopening economies and engaging in robust contact tracing. Um, two, the future of healthcare lies in decentralized testing. This is why the NHS is being pulled apart. And look at what it says here as CRISPR based diagnostics pave the way for decentralized testing, the technological disruption will also open the door for accelerated adoption of value-based care models. Um, you get a warm feeling with that, Mike. I don't, rather than fee-for-service healthcare as in the United States. So we're going to disrupt the existing system. That's what we're seeing, the NHS being ripped apart in order to bring in the new system. Um, and uh, this is going on to the decentralized testing. Uh, and uh, what are we here? Uh, we've got an organization called Mammoth, which is creating these CRISPR tests, but leave people to read this themselves. Here's three. The focus on infectious disease will continue beyond this pandemic. So don't think this is going to go away. Diagnostics, it says here, um, is a space where you must choose between a highly accurate result. I wonder where that is, Mike. Uh, that requires long turnaround times and trained personnel and expensive equipment, or a rapid test in an accessible format that sacrifices sensitivity and specificity. Thank you, having trouble with that one. Yeah, yeah. so uh, these are remarkable statements by this man. Is he living in Alice in Wonderland? That's one of the adverse effects of the vaccines. Perhaps he's uh, caught a bit of that. Four, people are thinking about modern healthcare differently. Well, no, we're not because we're not being told about what's going on. But it, here's the key statement. Furthermore, biotechnology will become a top strategic priority for many governments as an ability to prevent and mitigate a pandemic is an enormous political and economic, uh, economic advantage. But he's already said in the video that what they're really doing is heading towards re-engineering individuals. And five, information will play a big role in the public perception. We haven't got to understand it. We've only got to perceive things of testing and gene editing. And here's the glib statement about ethical use. At the bottom line, apparently, it's critical that the public has an opportunity to understand how these technologies work and access to informed and rigorous sources of information for doing so. That is why all the vaccine adverse uh, reactions are being hidden from the public, presumably, uh, so that there's going to be rigorous sources of information. So are these people lying to us or are they ill-informed or are they in Alice in Wonderland? We don't know. But let's have a look at this video uh, with a Chinese uh, gentleman 
Uh, he's certainly not in Alice in Wonderland. He's uh, in reality of at least his own head. Uh, but what he talks about, I think, is something we should all know about. Our genome is a huge book of billions of uh, letters, A, T, C, and G. So those sequence of the letters uh, are the genes we, we have. Most of the time, a disease happens not because of one gene have defects or multiple genes. So we need to know how to modify multiple genes simultaneously to be able to cure disease and to study biology. A couple years ago, it's very difficult to even make one uh, modification in one locus. But now, I think it's become possible to make uh, multiple changes in the genome. When you want to make a change in the genome, you really just need to go there and, and, and design molecular scissors to make a cut. And then you can have all kind of magic you can play with there. There are now three major classes of tools becoming available, like zinc finger nucleases, Talon, and, and CRISPR. The first two enzymes are, are literally like a scissor. So they have two halves, and each of them, each half recognizing part of the DNA sequences, they come together and make the cut. And the CRISPR is different because now your protein, Cas9, doesn't know where to cut, but it complexes with this small RNA molecule. And the RNA, if you know biochemistry, is, is made by four different flavor nucleotide, uh, slightly different from DNA. So they can naturally pairing with the DNA. Now you can have this perfect small molecule that targeting wherever in the genome you want that base pairing and guide the Cas9 protein to go there and make the break. So when this system was defined, the first indication to us is it's a perfect tool for multiplex genome editing because you can express one protein very large, but many small molecules of RNA very easily. So we show that in a single cell, you can efficiently kill five genes simultaneously uh, in a single cell, so, which is quite remarkable at that time. And then you can also introduce the system using a fine needle to inject them into the fertilized egg, which is the first cell of our life. So this is a mouse embryo, a mouse zygote. So when you inject the CRISPR system in there, they start to cut the DNA at the very beginning of life. Once you modify this cell, this cell will develop into a whole mouse. So the mouse will have the exact same mutation in every single cell. So by doing that, we show you can actually introduce precise modification in multiple genes in one step. You can also insert in large pieces of sequences in defined locus in a, in a multiplexed way. You generate an animal uh, uh, in one step. And this principle can be applied to other species as well. So there you have it. He's um, into magic and playing, uh, but he says we can we can change uh, the whole uh, mouse. We can change the whole human being by getting in early and playing around um, with the uh, development of the human being. And this is the technology uh, which is now being unleashed through the vaccines. And uh, it appears we're going to pay the penalty uh, if delivery of some of these vaccines con continues. Uh, okay, we're just about out of time. So Alex, we'll, uh, we'll come towards the end uh, now. And uh, well, TechCrunch you've got here uh, talking about ProtonMail. Many people are using ProtonMail as some kind of uh, privacy, uh, uber privacy email system that, that guarantees that no matter what you do, you're not going to be uh, uh, interacting with law enforcement at all. But the key point here that TechCrunch uh, writes about in a very long and detailed article, Mike, that people should go to, is that even if the Swiss say uh, we're not in the EU, we have national full sovereignty to legislate privacy and an apparent right to be told if the cops want your details like your IP address, 
In practice, the Swiss can say, ah, no, you see, threat to life, uh, because even their national legislation allows that. And in this particular case, the French thought, well, uh, it's a Swiss company, they're outside the EU, uh, but we'll just lean on them. And how did they do that? They did so through Europol. So, quote, it seems like Europol acted as the communication channel between the French authorities who wanted the target and the Swiss authorities who hosted his email. At some point, the Swiss took over the case and they are members of Europol. Uh, the police and judicial arrangements for the EU, Europol, Eurojust, include an increasing number of non-EU territories and jurisdictions such as the Faroe Islands and Iceland and some of the Balkan countries. At some point, they say, uh, Swiss authorities took over the case and sent a request to ProtonMail. But this includes apparently some kind of back channel intelligence agency lean on ProtonMail to get right to the edge of Swiss legislation so as apparently not to inform the French target in question uh, of his rights under Swiss law to be told that they were after him. Um, I think uh, one of the things that uh, really grabbed people was the fact that uh, ProtonMail over the last number of years has been uh, claiming that they don't log any IP addresses and that therefore uh, it wouldn't be possible to track someone down in, in that case. But of course, uh, one that may, that, may, that may have been true, but... Uh, if there's a court warrant issued, then they may need to start logging in particular circumstances. Uh, and that seems to have been what happened here. But the other thing that I believe ProtonMail is saying is that the only information that uh, law enforcement can or governments can uh, redeem uh, is, um, you know, who you sent email to. It, the actual body of the email itself is encrypted, which they, I believe, are saying uh, can't be unencrypted except unless they have access to the endpoints themselves. So anyway, there's, there's probably more to come on that story. Um, now, earlier in the program, Alex, you mentioned uh, uh, this gentleman. Just uh, remind us what uh, what's going on here. He is Ernst Wolf, v, uh, sorry, W-O-L-F-F, -F, and his books are available in English. He's an expert writer on the International Monetary Fund and other hijinks of the world financial cabal. And uh, in extra time, we will be playing out some more sections of this speech. Here, towards the beginning of his speech, he's simply saying, in much the same vein as Catherine Austin Fitz, and he's a, at a similar level of expertise, and uh, he's not competing with her or whatever, but he, they'll be aware of each other, but he's, he's giving a kind of stereo view from the continent just to show to you that other good people beside Catherine Austin Fitz are saying the same thing. He's setting out that uh, the big five uh, tech companies are bigger uh, in GDP terms than advanced European countries. They're getting towards US levels of wealth even at this point. And uh, he sets out that they really had um, to do something uh, to redeem their own system after the last bubble, which they only managed to get themselves out of the crash for in 2007-8 by leaning on legislators. So in extra time, we'll be playing out some more sections. Uh, if people wish to listen to the full speech with good English subtitles, one of the ways they can find a link to it is to go to John Waters' uh, page, which these days is on substack.com. He has a link to that from his latest blog. And I have an and finally video as well. Uh, yes, because last week you brought us some rap. What are you bringing us this week? I'm bringing us Gilbert and Sullivan now. Um, it's, uh, you, it's to the tune of I am the very model of a modern major general. Of course, the most famous um, riff on that was done by Tom Lehrer, the dear old man. He's still with us, age 93. And Lehrer, in fact, gifted his whole uh, corpus of uh, songs to the public domain last year as a kind of a, a farewell act to the public, as it were. Uh, but here is yet another uh, riff take or, or, uh, using the same tune. Uh, this is taking aim squarely at the British-based population planning. Um, the 
awful books like George, Ber- sorry, not George Bernard Shaw, though he did write about this, like uh, Bertrand Russell's book, The Impact of Science on Society, uh, which speculates that uh, children will be um, easily taught in future that snow is black, and maybe that will be more expensive than teaching them that snow is grey, but it, it will be doable, right? So a bit like foreseeing CRISPR. And of course, this leads to the radical depopulation agenda. So here we have a um, group of Americans for the 50th anniversary uh, of the collapse of the uh, Bretton Woods system when the uh, the dollar was shored up by taking it off the gold standard. Of course, that was supposed to be a, a two weeks to save the dollar. Sound familiar? Uh, not to flatten the curve, but to save the dollar in 71. And it's turned into 50 years of non-convertibility of dollars to gold. Uh, but here we are to mark that, uh, that event, uh, a group of singers uh, who uh, have an interesting name that appears on screen in a moment, the Master Race Theatre, I think it is, with a lead singer who goes by the nice... Uh, uh, moniker of uh, Hugo First. In other words, if you want op- depopulation, why don't you volunteer to be killed yourself? Hugo First and the Master Race Theatre present their, their uh, song, I Am the Very Model of a Modern Climate Modeler. Protecting the environment from progress on the belt and road. 
Alas, I fear too many people are beginning to defy my peer-reviewed and flawless calculations proving they must die. Perhaps they'll organize to generate 8,000 gigawatts instead of playing Grand Theft Auto as they fry their brains on hot. Instead of playing Grand Theft Auto as they fry their brains on hot. Instead of playing Grand Theft Auto as they fry their brains on hot. Instead of playing Grand Theft Auto as they fry their brains on hot. Okay, well done. <laughs> Priceless, isn't it? I think it was really excellent. We enjoyed that one. And uh, if we can finish on another bit of good news, um, uh, interesting little phone call to say it appears that we've now got a little group of Westminster MPs that have finally decided it's time to tune into the UK column. So, of course, we can't mention names, but we will say if you're part of the team now watching us uh, from Westminster, we're delighted that you're on board and uh, perhaps in the future, one or two of you may be kind enough to do an interview for UK Column. Um, we'll leave that it there. Yes. Okay, thanks uh, for joining. Well, I'm just going to say we'll be back in a few minutes for extra if uh, you're on the UK Column live stream. Otherwise, we'll be back on Friday, 1pm as usual. Indeed. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.